Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, you're listening to The Economist Asks, and today we're asking, how should companies evolve in the digital age? Technology has embedded itself within almost every facet of society. It's fundamentally transforming the way we live our lives and the way we run our businesses. So, as the digital revolution continues to disrupt in waves, how should people and companies adapt and stay ahead? Our guests this week are Andrew McAfee and Eric Brynjolfsson, renowned academics, best-selling authors, co-founder and director respectively of the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy. Their new book, Machine Platform Crowd, aims to tease apart key aspects of the digital revolution and find the underpinnings of innovation and disruption that are shaping our world. Our technology correspondent, Hal Hodson, spoke to the duo recently about the ways that companies could and perhaps should reinvent themselves for this new era. Eric and Andrew, welcome. Thank you for coming on the show. So good to be here. My first question is straight to the heart of the matter. Who has the power in this new digital economy of machines, platforms and crowds? People who understand machines, platforms and crowds. (laughs) The the reality is that the technology is widely available and becoming more and more pervasive. But the real bottleneck is understanding how to take advantage of it. There's a lot of chaos out there as people try different business models, and many of them fail spectacularly. Some existing business models no longer work. So we tried to create a framework that explained how to get the power, how to get the success by applying some economic principles. Andy? There's a lot of lip service going on out there. We come across very few companies where people say, I hate machines, I'm totally uninterested in platforms, and I don't think that the the wisdom of the crowds is real. We just don't hear that very often. What happens instead is even though leaders of companies say that, they're still married to the old industrial model of how to run a successful company. And what Eric and I believe is that that model these days is far too reliant on over machines, far too focused on products over platforms, and way too strongly emphasizing the core of the organization as opposed to an ability to reach out to this massive crowd of minds available on the internet. And why do you think these organizations have difficulty adapting to this this new way of doing business that you document in the book? Oh, it's the it's the oldest story in the book, right? Big changes make most of us redouble back on the status quo mm. and rely on what got us to this point. One thing that Eric and I have concluded is that technology rewrites the business playbook and that very often incumbents don't read the new playbook or are unwilling to try to pick it up. As Andy said, this is not a new phenomenon. You go back to to the time when businesses transformed from steam engines to electricity. And the technology was very powerful very quickly, but it took about 30 years for companies to reinvent their factories to take full advantage. That gets to the heart of one of my main questions, and I think one of the questions that a lot of people have about this new digital economy, AI, machine learning, very exciting world, which is, is it fundamentally different from what's gone before, or is it an acceleration and a scaling out of what's gone before? Big parts of it are very different. Previously, we really had to explain exactly what we wanted our machines to do. We had to write detailed code, and we had to understand the process and be able to describe it. Now, with the machine learning revolution, machines are learning how to do things that we can't even articulate. We show them examples of faces. We show them examples of voice pieces. We show them examples of fraud or not fraud, and they learn to see patterns on 
on their own. That's something really powerful, and it's transforming a lot of applications today. Andy? Here's another reason why we believe that things are different in kind, not just in degree. The smartphone revolution is just about 10 years old. But when the iPhone was first introduced, Steve Jobs thought that he was building a beautiful product with the iPhone at Apple and that the war over the smartphone, which he knew was going to be a big war, was going to be won and lost on the strength of product. And he was so concerned about maintaining tight control over this beautiful product that he developed that he refused to open up the App Store to outside developers for a year after the iPhone came out. And he had board members and venture capitalists and executives pleading with him to change that decision. It took a year. The App Store opened up for the first time to outside developers just about exactly nine years ago in July of 2008. They introduced about 500 apps from outside developers. They came back three days later. Those apps had been downloaded 10 million times. Jobs at that point was smart enough to realize something was fundamentally different in the world, and they put in that process now whereby the iPhone is a platform for apps. Yes, it's a product. It's a device. It's a nice device. That is not what's winning the battle for Apple and the smartphone wars. It's this platform that they created. And Eric and I came across an estimate that Apple now makes a about 103% of the total global profits in the worldwide smartphone industry. Samsung makes about a percent. Everybody else in total in this massive, global, huge industry loses money collectively. They're still playing a product game. That also plays into one of the core questions that I didn't see addressed uh, throughout the book very much, which is if data is the new resource from which these insights can be automatically gleaned, that's the big shift. That's what's very, very different is that you can almost you can make a product automatically using machine learning, essentially. The crowd produces it, the platform aggregates it, and the machine processes it. Then how do we think about the value of data in this new economy? Don't we need to reassess that? Don't we need to worry about that, especially if the crowd is the one producing it? Eric? Data is enormously valuable, and it can be used in lots of different ways. Some companies have a lot of proprietary data. There's a lot of publicly available data. A lot of business models depend on generating new kinds of data. So companies with very large data sets will have an advantage in certain categories. But what we've seen is that you can have a lot of data about cucumbers and be the world's best machine learning system at identifying good and bad cucumbers. Or you can learn about human resources inside your own company and have the data on that and apply the machine learning techniques to that. So there are medium, large, small opportunities across the board. Everybody needs to appreciate the value of data more and more. It's not a one-size-fits-all opportunity. And what Eric said that, that I find really powerful is that let's say you become the world expert company at recognizing good cucumbers via machine learning. It's not too hard to segue from that into cabbages and carrots and apples and pears. So it's very plausible to us that we'll see an agricultural powerhouse emerge from very humble beginnings and not having very much data at first. This notion out there that it's, at, it's game over at this point in time because the companies with the most data today are going to dominate for all time, I see simply don't agree with that. I think that's naive. And, and let me give you another concrete example of that. Uh, it wasn't that long ago that Amazon entered the voice recognition market with their Amazon Echo. Previously, they hadn't been a player at all. And, and I have to say, honestly, I was a little surprised how quickly they had a successful product. They're arguably the best product on the market. And it just emphasizes that we're still in very early days in this revolution. Exactly in the area where a lot of us were walking around thinking that with speech recognition, the company with the most data is absolutely going to win. That was not what happened. My question was more along the lines of what the people ultimately who generate the 
data, the crowd. Where do, like the book seems to focus on guidance for the for the leaders, for for those who control the machines and the platforms. But what about guidance for the crowd? What should the crowd do? Not everybody wants to be a leader. Some people want to be workers. There are a couple different aspects to your question. One is, should we be compensated for the data that we are contributing to these massive platforms that, like you say, uh, feed data into machines? We are getting compensated for that. We're getting compensated for that by having extraordinarily powerful search engines for free. We're getting compensated by having a social network where we can upload an arbitrary amount of media for free and consume that from other people, platforms where we can express ourselves in any form that we want. I find this more than a fair bargain. So when I think about us as contributors in this machine platform crowd ecosystem, as individuals, not speaking as workers yet, but as individuals, we are getting more than a fair deal, I believe. I agree with what Andy said. And and I think the key to keep in mind is that we need to have, you know, voluntary open exchange, no yep. fraud, no force. And to the extent that's happening, people are, are choosing. Now, in some cases, there are opportunities to make a lot of money by becoming a, a data scientist, posting something on Kaggle and becoming famous. In other cases, uh, bloggers or people contributing to Wikipedia or, or people who simply post their kids' photos to Facebook so their grandmother can see them, they're getting compensation in non-monetary, non-financial ways. To me, as long as these are voluntary exchanges, I take a hands-off approach. How fundamental will this shift be? This is something I've wondered myself a lot in my own reporting. Is the new core of the economy going to be that crowd, that data it generates and you're feeding into those platforms? Or will there be, will it remain in balance between a series of organizations and that core in the crowd? There are two kinds of mistakes people are making in this economy when it comes to firm boundaries and how to tap into the crowd. The first one is that people massively underestimate how powerful the crowd is, and they don't tap into those millions of people outside the organization nearly effectively enough. And if more organizations did that, they would be much more successful. The second one, which we see more among our tech geek friends, is they turn the dial all the way to 10 or 11 on the scale and say, hey, we don't need uh, people or organizations anymore. We're like going to have this. The concept of the company is, is officially outdated thanks to blockchain and we, things like yeah, that. Yeah, we're going to have a, a, a blockchain, a distributed autonomous organization where everything will be encoded in beautiful um, computer algorithms and they will just make all the decisions and everything will run smoothly. That kind of view of the world is appealing to a certain group. It's, it's probably a, a pretty small minority, like 1% or 2% of the people we run into, but it's a very vocal group. And we think that is also a big mistake. And in the, in the book, we describe some economic concepts from incomplete contracts and transaction costs that describe why you can't fully specify the entire world into a piece of computer code and and while it's more powerful to decentralize things than it has been in the past, it doesn't mean the end of human decision making or the end of the organization. How can we ensure that these platforms continue to serve people? Do you have faith that the market will continue to sort this out and that you've expressed a lot of faith in the, the way these companies already run and the services they provide? Do you think that that's going to continue of its own accord or is there anything that we need to pay attention to? I wouldn't say faith, but I would say that as long as we are vigilant, I think that's the way to go. So the track record over the past century is that if we let companies compete with each other, they create more value for customers. And right now what we're seeing is a kind of Schumpeterian competition where platforms rise and get dominant market shares, but then surprisingly quickly, other platforms come along and often displace them. As long as that keeps happening, as long as we see vigorous innovation and competition and falling prices or even free goods and services, then I'd say let's let it run. Andy? I can't sit here and identify what is going to disrupt Facebook, 
Google or Amazon. I, I just I can't see that. These are extremely large, successful. They're very well managed companies, and they understand the dynamics that Eric and I have been talking about. And they've watched previous lessons from business history, and they're trying very hard not to repeat them. So I can't sit here and identify what's going to disrupt them. That is very different from me saying nothing is going to disrupt them, and therefore the only solution be in the interest of consumer protection is to smash them up. I think something's going to come along and disrupt them someday. Eric and Andrew, thank you very much for coming on the show. Pleasure to have you. Thanks for having us. We're delighted to be here. My thanks to Andrew McAfee and Eric Brynolfsson and our technology correspondent, Hal Hodson. If you've any thoughts on what you've just heard, then do send them to us the old-fashioned way via radio at economist.com or via Twitter at Economist Radio. That's all for The Economist Asks this week. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.